Welcome to the Practice Purchase Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hanks with Dental Buyer Advocates. You are listening to season six, all about successful transitions from prospective buyer into owner of a practice. And one of the key pieces of that transition to make sure that you're successful is to make sure that the money is flowing into your business checking account. And if you buy a practice that takes any insurances, PPOs of any kind, or is out of network with some insurance companies, you're going to want to listen to this episode because I'm talking with Ben Tuane of Veritas Dental Resources. Ben is an internationally now, uh, but definitely in the U.S., widely known expert for all things insurance negotiations, PPO reductions, getting rid of PPOs, negotiating with uh, the insurance companies, knowing how to go primary, how to go secondary, the timing, when to negotiate. Ben knows it all, and he was kind enough to speak to us in this episode. Um, Where I focus with Ben is around the transition, the timing, and if there's a cost involved and how much that would be. I always tell buyers there are two players that you pay for in a transition. You're going to pay your accountant, your CPA, and you definitely need to pay a lawyer. And I I joke that since I'm the accountant, I joke uh, with clients that if you, for cost reasons, have to choose between the two, you always pick the lawyer. And and it's a joke, but there's some seriousness behind that because the lawyer is non-negotiable. You have to hire a lawyer. There is a a potential third party that you might hire in a transition before you even buy the practice, and that is someone like Ben or Ben and his firm. And that's because Ben is the expert when it comes to negotiating um, you know, with the insurance companies before you come on board. The reason this is key is once you sign on the dotted line with an insurance company, there's usually a window of time that you're locked into a contract. So if you say, all right, um, you know, whoever, MetLife, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, I'm ready to come on board. I was an associate before I had an NPI one number with you before, and now I'm a, a, a new business entity. I have an NPI two, that's for my practice. And uh, I need the rate schedule for my NPI two. They're gonna come to you and say, great, here you go, it's $1,100 per crown. Ben's job is to get you $1,400 a crown or 15 or whatever the number is, right? And so if you don't get that up front, oftentimes there can be a 12, 18, 24 month period of time where you can't go back to the insurance company and ask for 12, 13, 1400 per crown. You're locked in for a specific amount of time. So um, we talk about that. We talk about what happens if credentialing takes you past the closing date and some other key issues. So with that in mind, please listen to the episode. Um, reach out to Ben or me if you have questions. Inevitably, you're going to have questions on this topic, uh, but there's a ton of good information here. Ben Tuna, Veritas Dental Resources, so happy to have you. Ben, how long have you been working dental insurance? And do you have any guess on how many dentists do you think you've helped over the, by now, I'm sure more than a decade? Well, great question there, Brian. Always great to chat with you. You know, I've, I've been in dentistry since 2007. Uh, I started my career as an executive. I was hired um, into a DSO as a vice president of third-party peer relations, such a mouthful of a title there that I'm so glad I don't have anymore. Um, But, you know, starting in that area, I was hired specifically to negotiate with insurance. And um, funny thing, Brian, is that when I was hired by the group, there were a lot of insurance experts that worked for that group, none of which had any experience negotiating fees. They said, well, it could be done. We don't know how to do it, but we've heard it can be done. (laughs) So once I figured it out, I started... uh, getting requests from uh, the the doctors that worked for the group that had private practices. And they were jealous because we were getting over a thousand and a crown at, at the group. And then at their practices, they're only getting 550 or less. Um, so naturally that kind of sparked the interest in building a business. And I started the business in 2009. I built a, a few businesses that provide this service and as well as helped other groups kind of get off the ground and building a department like this for, for those other groups uh, throughout the country. Uh, but in all, if I, were to, if I were to guess how many practices combined that we've helped, it's pushing around 8,500 nationwide. Amazing. Um, yeah. You know, and our services are one where, you know, we get a lot of doctors that just need credentialing, right? Um, and so, you know, our database is quite vast in the sense that when we, we track revenue from those that we've helped negotiate, 
Um, we're estimating that that's pushing closer to 4.5 billion in new revenue for those doctors. So it's, Ooh. it's, uh, the, the numbers are piling up year over wow. year in terms of uh, what we're taking back from insurance in terms of what should be in the dental practices in terms of payment, right? <laughs> Last estimate I saw, I think a 2020 number was uh, total active dental licenses in the USA, something like 200,000. So mm-hmm. if you've touched, you know, 8,500, I, I bet you're underestimating, let's call it 10,000, 10, you know, 5% of dentists have worked with uh, Ben to an A in some form or fashion. <laughs> and I would bet, um, you know, the folks that are engaged um, and, and at least, you know, read something like dental economics or listen to podcasts or some of the shows and the places that you are, uh, it's, it's hard for people to miss you. So thank you for oh, thank you. lending your expertise. As you know, our dentists, uh, our clients at uh, Dental Buyer Advocates uh, are either aspiring or recent new business owners, right? They've just Mm -hmm. bought their practice or they're about to buy their practice. And we get a ton of questions about insurance. I want to start with some of the basics and and we'll dive deep into some of these topics. And you have free reign to tell me, Brian, that question doesn't matter at all. Skip it. (laughs) Uh, I know your clients are asking it, but it's not important. That's uh, something that uh, I would love to hear. But, you know, let's start with the very first question. We've got, uh, let's take my prototypical client. Let's put them at the stage where they think they have found a practice but they haven't bought it yet. So it's in that interim period where I'm talking to a seller, maybe there's a broker involved. Uh, I'm trying to decide, or maybe I did just put in an offer, but my closing date is still a few weeks or months away. Is there a best time for uh, a new practice owner to start the insurance credentialing process? Again, Again, let's assume this practice at least takes one or a couple PPOs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My, excuse me, my recommendation is getting started as, as early as you can, <clears throat> although I, I recognize that um, sometimes practices, you know, you sign a purchase agreement and then two, three weeks later, you're closing, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> and it's a little bit of a gamble. If you start if you start the process, the credentialing process before you have the practice secured, you do run the risk of spending time and resources on credentialing and not uh, actually per- moving forward with the purchase of the practice, whether it's you pull out or the seller pulls out. Mm-hmm. And that does happen quite a bit. Um, we've had <clears throat> a lot of clients start. <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, it's early morning. You're good. Here. I'm overcoming some some crazy crazy respiratory virus. No, no. <clears throat> um, but but we've had some clients start early, and then the practices the practice purchase just fell apart. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the other part you have to consider is that if you do have a non disclosure agreement, confidentiality agreement in place where the seller hasn't disclosed that the practice is being sold. To the team members just yet. If you do engage in the credentialing process right away, um, before the practices is closed or before the seller has disclosed that the practice is being sold to the team, um, you will risk that insurance companies will call the practice and they'll request credentialing documents and they'll talk about what you've been emailing those representatives about. So it's a delicate dance, or it's a you have to play the timing very right where. If there is a confidentiality agreement in place, it's probably not a good idea to start the credentialing process until you work out with the seller when the seller uh, notifies the team. Otherwise, you're going to violate that confidentiality, right? In, yeah. in the sense that in, even though you tell insurance, hey, don't contact this practice, mm-hmm. they will still contact the office uh, and just completely ignore or miss the fact that you have different contact information for them to reach out to for you. Let me, so, let me, I'm going to repeat your answer yeah. in my words. You tell me if I've got this right. And and I don't want to skip over the, the possibility that you might finish credentialing after you buy the practice. So let's, mm-hmm. uh, you and I are definitely going to talk about what happens and how do you handle that. But let me just go back to this decision point. Yes. This aspiring buyer has, and what I hear you saying is, ideal scenario is you start as early as possible. Um and, and that's, and you didn't say this, but my understanding is it can take 60, 90, maybe 90 plus days mm-hmm. to cr- complete the credentialing and the negotiation process. So if my closing date is 45 days away, uh, the buyer has an incentive to start as early as possible. What I also heard you say was, hey, there might be some awkwardness. Yes. If you start that process and the seller is mm-hmm. trying to keep this uh, under wraps from patients and staff until money actually hits a bank account, the, the insurance companies 
might call the front desk and they might talk to Susie because they know Susie and they might ask a question of Susie at the front desk, but she's not selling the practice. <laughs> and Susie doesn't know that uh, the seller is selling the practice and that could create some awkwardness. So, um, okay. It, did I, first of all, did I get that right? Yes. Spot okay. on, spot on. So, you know, what is a buyer to do? Here's my advice. You tell me, Ben, um, how you would amend this or you know, what you've seen be successful. My advice is try to be as open and communicative with the seller as possible and then adjust as needed. So in, in an ideal world, the seller says, oh, gosh, you know, buyer, that makes perfect sense. All right. You're right. It, it's kind of silly for me to keep this a secret from the staff. Let's get, let's get this above board and let's get everybody, you know, we'll tell everybody what's going on. But that doesn't always happen. Um, right. If that, if like a broker is just like, no way, no how, money has to hit a bank account before anybody knows anything, um, we'll, we'll talk about what to handle, how to handle that in, in just a second. But, um, you know, am I thinking about that right, Ben? And what would you change to that answer? Yeah, you're, you're correct. You know, when, when it comes to the seller, they have, they have in their mind, based upon the advice they're getting from their broker on what's best for the transition, right? In terms of confidentiality. And as a buyer, you have no choice but to honor those terms, right? right. Because uh, that's part of the deal. Um, so it's tough for buyers because they're, they're, the vast majority of the time, a buyer purchases a practice and they're still out of network with every single PPO when the close date comes, mm -hmm. right? So the key question is, what do you do during that moment? <laughs> the period in which you're out of network, like in some states, Delta Dental and Blue Cross won't even pay you. Uh, they'll send the checks to the patient, um, and then the rest of the PPOs, your cash flow is delayed if you're billing out of network where you have to get registered as an out-of-network pro uh, pro provider uh, or wait for the entire credentialing process to complete for the insurance company to then start to release payments to you, right? Um, so in that regard, this whole credentialing issue, it is a big issue in transitions where if you have a good plan in place and if you, commun <clears throat> if you communicate with the seller, that's a key thing that you mentioned, Brian, is that you have to communicate with the seller on this and don't don't run the risk of doing something that um, both of you don't agree with. Right. And, you know, in order for these deals to work out, if the sellers really, really want you to keep things confidential, I recommend that you honor that. But may, perhaps maybe we go into the step of, well, what do you do if you don't have a choice to yeah. but to be out of network? Right. Right. Let's so, do that. Yeah, let's talk about it. And then and yeah. I would kind of back, come back to what are the steps and what are the mm -hmm. processes. But OK, buyer is gosh, they're up against a wall. Yes. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Practice collects, you know, let's call it an even million a year, you know, $83,000 a month. So, um, and they're, they're looking at that going, oh my gosh, like what if the first few months of business, I, I'm only seeing the random person that pays with a credit card or, you know, mm -hmm. I've got to somehow try to tell the patient to, they get to pay me, but their insurance company is going to pay them back. That seems super awkward on top of everything else going on in a transition. Uh, okay. So, you know, what do you, what, what do you tell the buyers to do? Yes, I. So there's the, there's a there's industry standard, right? For most transitions that occur, even before I got entered the in industry, um, it was customary for buyers and sellers to have an agreement in place where the seller well the seller would agree to have the claims continue to be submitted to insurance under the seller's license and MPI, right, and tax ID number and all that. Seller would be the recipient of that income and then 1099 it over to the buyer, right? Or transfer that money to the buyer so the buyer can have cash flow to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. um, it is a gray area. And the way I would explain it in terms of the best way to do something like this is let's walk back to dental school <laughs> uh, first, right? Let's go back to dental school because the de dental school for dentists is the first example of how to do the billing under another doctor, right? I do the work and it's submitted under another doctor's license, right? So as a student in dental school, remember when you perform any procedure on a patient, a year two, year three, year four student, right? Um, you never appeared on a claim. You did the treatment and a year four student, you were running solo, right? right? In the clinic with very little, if any, supervision, right? By the teachers. But anytime a student performs a procedure, the claim gets submitted under the supervising dentist license, right? And so the schools have what's called a supervision agreement or a dental director agreement between the students and the faculty, the, the, the fac members of the faculty that are licensed dentists in that state. So there's a law called the False Claims Act. 
And the language in the False Claims Act, um, as it pertains to this situation, it says that a claim that is submitted under, under the name and license of a dentist who neither performed nor supervised treatment is considered a false claim. So this is how dental schools are able to submit claims on behalf of non-licensed students to insurance and Medicaid um, you know, when the, the students are performing procedures on their own, right? Um, you apply that in private practice to where both doctors are licensed. Um, you can er, have an, a supervision type of agreement between a buyer and seller that kind of follows and mirrors how things are done in dental school, right? To keep, keep things sort of kosher under the False Claims Act. So I sat in court a number of times on this very issue. And interestingly, whenever... Um, one, you know, either the plaintiff or the defendant brought up this issue, said, well, they used my license number. And then the other side said, well, we had an agreement in place. Here it is. And we honored the expiration date and you were considered the supervisor. You agreed to this. And the judge, the judge immediately stopped and said, let's move on. There's an agreement in place that follows the False Claims Act. Not an issue. Right. Yep. So I know firsthand <laughs> that sitting in court you know, serving as an expert witness where buyers and sellers are suing each other for whatever reason, anytime this comes up, if there's an agreement, you're good to go. It seems like the judges are satisfied with that. When there's no agreement in place, at that point, you're, I mean, both parties could be liable, like Got significantly it. liable right at that point for committing insurance claims fraud, or primarily the buyer, right? Yep. Yep. And then, and then the seller can then use that. I mean, if in a court of law, the seller can play ignorance. I didn't agree to that, right? If there's nothing in writing, in an effort to get a judge to cite in their favor, whatever, right. whatever they're fighting about, right? So you have to have this not only a, not just a handshake agreement, but mm -hmm. you have to have this in a, in a written agreement format, especially if you're audited or sued, right? Mm -hmm. That yep. there was a supervision agreement in place as per the False Claims Act. Okay, so buyer is still working on credentialing. They just closed. They've got the keys to the office. Now they're the dentist. They're the owner, um, but they're not yet in network with the, the insurance companies. What I hear you saying is you can still bill under the seller's NPI number mm -hmm. as long as there's a supervisory agreement in place. Correct. Got it. Correct. And, and, now, and, and there's a gray area and you need to you know consult with your attorney, maybe yes. give you a call. Where does, where does a person... Uh, get a supervisor agreement? Can I call you? Good question. Now you actually went over the disclaimer that I forgot to go over. That. Oh yeah, that's okay. So I'm, I'm not an attorney. So, yep. so this is not intended to be legal advice. Everybody yep. needs to get their own attorney to consult with, to, to um, get a, seek an approval on a, a supervision agreement. Mm -hmm. I have a sample from Baker Law out of Ohio mm -hmm. um, that they sent to me. Um, and I'm more than happy to share it with anybody. But again, legal disclaimer, it is 100% um, advisable for you to seek your own attorney to get that agreement vetted. And you know that, that agreement is typically vetted by both the buyers and sellers attorneys. And the majority of the time, if, if the buyers and sellers attorneys are familiar with the False Claims Act, uh, it, is, it is something that is um, accepted by both sides. Although fair warning, from my experience, uh, the sellers attorneys, even though they do understand the False Claims Act, it's their fiduciary responsibility to eliminate liability for the seller, for their yep. client, right? Yep. So be prepared that you'll get some pushback on this. Um, and it, it primarily will come from the seller's attorney that's saying, well, yeah, this is okay under the False Claims Act, but I don't want, I, I don't want to advise anything that's going to risk any liability for you, right? So yeah. they'll say, they'll, they'll likely say no to that. Mm, interesting. Which yeah. leads, well, sometimes, not likely, sure. sometimes they'll say no. Which kind of leads us to the next thing. Well, what do you do then? Right. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>? exactly. <laughs> Which basically, at that point, you have no option but to file claims out of network, right? Yep. Yeah. And so, and so this is this is what I tell buyers. Again, I'm gonna, um, I'll give my answer, and then what I'm hoping you can do, Ben, is correct me. Sure. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm not afraid to sound like an idiot. What I tell the buyer is, hey, listen, uh, you are going to bill out of network for a period of time until you can get credentialed. That's gonna suck. Mm -hmm. think about the long game. You like yes. the practice, you like the patient base, you like the location, theoretically, maybe, hopefully, you like the staff. Um, this is going to be your professional home for the next decade, two, three. Um, I wish that you didn't have the next you know, six, maybe eight weeks where you're billing out of network. That does suck, and, and you will lose some income. Mm -hmm. Think about the long game. Do you still like the practice? Can you still make this work? And oh, by the way, the bank gave you some working capital so that you don't starve and you can still pay your staff for those first few months. 
am I a fan of this? Do I wish that you had to go through this? No, of course not. But, um, you know, do you really want the practice? Yeah. That's, that's what I tell them. That's, that's spot on. Um, that's probably the best advice that I've heard anybody say in a situation like this, because, you know, you, you have to overlook the struggle, right? But you can't ignore the struggle. If you really like this practice, if it, if it has value for you long term, things will tend to work out, especially if you have working capital to cover um, the cash flow that you're not going to get over the next two to three months. Right. And and I think, you know, big picture wise, um, if the practice is extremely profitable, the first two to three months you can deal with. Right. I mean, we've even seen some clients um, like on Delta Dental, as an example, in California, Delta Dental, if you're already in network, but just you just need to add yourself to a new location, it takes three to four months for Delta wow. to process that paperwork. Yeah. And so Delta during that period will not send you any EOBs. It will not send you any checks. It won't even let you verify patient benefits or eligibility. They won't let you do a pre-auth. <laughs> and it sucks because they just won't communicate with you at all. Um, so, so in those situations, you have the option to collect in full from the patient, which does tend to kind of contribute towards some patient attrition or at least an accelerated rate of patient attrition. Um, or you can choose to collect the estimated co-payments and then gamble on, yeah. you know, following up with a patient on, on the insurance uh, uh, reimbursement, right? To which a lot of times you don't collect a lot of that. But no matter which route you go, um, my, my preference is, is that you do whatever is best to keep the patients happy, right? Yep. Because you're only going to be suffering for the first two to three months. But if, you know, big picture wise, like what you mentioned, Brian, is that if you if you manage things in the way where you're keeping the patients as happy, as happy as possible with minimal change. Right. In the end, once you overcome this hurdle of the initial credentialing, things tend to be pretty smooth sailing moving forward. As long as the, yep. you know, the patients that you're treating are happy with you as the new provider and they don't see big, big changes. Right. That's the key. Right. The the what you're buying in a dental practice purchase isn't the equipment. It's not the staff. It's the patients, right? right? It's that patient habit. And so my advice is keep those patients happy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Even if that does mean you eat a few crowns in your first few weeks of business, which again, I hope that they don't have to do, but uh, sometimes it happens. Okay. It, it does. So, so you bring up another point. Do you mind if I mention something else that's Please. really controversial? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go, let's do it. So here's the controversial part about this is that um, there's this whole whole issue with if you're out of network or in network, if you discount a patient's copayment, right? Mm. <clears throat> the law and the American Dental Association, their their um, ethics, their code of ethics, they do recommend, and the law requires you to report any discount that you promote, right? Yep. If if it's an insured patient, you have to disclose that to the patient's insurance, regardless of whether you're in network or out of network. But how do you keep patients happy when you're not credentialed? <clears throat> Meaning like if there's a, a co-payment on preventative, how do you deal with that, right? Where they're used to not having any co-payment at all for their profies, right? Right. So here's my tip. <clears throat> yeah. And I welcome, especially if any attorneys listen to this, I welcome feedback on this because we've done extensive research on this on how to, how to keep the out-of-network window as in-network as friendly as you can be to the patients. So in our legal research, we've learned that yes, there's the law. When you when you promote advertise a discount to a patient, if they have insurance, you have to report it to the on the EOB, excuse me, on the claim, regardless of your network status. But what about when you estimate, right? If if I if I don't even know and I'm out of network and I don't know if there's a copayment for this preventative care patient, right? And I, I say, look, we estimate that today there's nothing out of pocket as it was, you know, under the previous doctor. And then I just give them a disclosure. Hey, we're in, and we're in the process of getting credential with your dental plan. We're going to get approved. Doctor has pr perfect history, right? He's a great, great clinician. We're going to get approved. But we estimate that there's no out of pocket today, right? EOB comes back in 30 days or so. <laughs> and it says that the patient owes a 20% copayment. Real well, quick, just, to, just for the uh, D3s, D4s listening, EOB. Yeah, oh, yes. Thank yeah, you. No, no, no stress. I know what Ex you mean, but I just want to make sure the listeners do. Thank you. Thank you. So explanation of benefit statement, thank right? You. Yep. Keep going. Okay. Which is accompanied with the reimbursement check that both the patient the patient will receive and then the doctor will receive plus the check, right? The reimbursement Ex dollars. Got it. Explanation of benefit comes in. Okay. So I'm still talking to that patient. Then what Correct. happens? 
Yep. Correct. So you receive that. Of course, the patient's not in the office. You just get that explanation of benefit in the mail. And it says patient owes a 20% copayment. Now, what is so the key question is, is what is your your legal obligation at this point, right? And the law, and this is the cool thing about what we've learned about how the laws are written in every state and then the federal laws that govern the ERISA plans. ERISA, mm. those are federally self-funded. It's a law yep. to govern self-funded plans, right? If an employer chooses a self-fund. And those laws don't require the doctor to have a 100% collection rate, right? If they, if there's any amount of write-off, for whatever reason, there's no reporting obligation at that point to insurance. And the reason why is the law does indicate that, well, sometimes patients don't pay. So should the doctor be penalized with an, with an additional discount on the insurance side because the patient didn't pay their financial responsibility? And the answer to that question is no, right? right. So the doctors have that loop. It, well, it's not necessarily a loophole. You can look at it as a loophole. But but it is a, 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 a regulation that says that the doctors are not, you know, they're not lawfully required to, to collect at that point. Um, and they're not lawfully required to report any non-collections at oh, that point. So patient gets a letter, but the doctor just says, forget about it. Yeah. 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 And so so the idea here is you're keeping you're trying your best to, to adhere to the in-network standard. And that's the only standard you will you, you will know. You won't even know what the out-of-network benefits is unless you invest a significant amount of time trying to find out, which a lot of insurance companies won't share with you anyway. You can do your best to give the patient an estimate. And I recommend estimating uh, uh, based upon the, the previous in-network standard. Right. Smart. And then when the payments come in, the explanation of benefit comes in and it shows an additional balance lawfully from our extensive legal research, you're not required to balance bill. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're not required to report that you that there was a, a write-off, whether the patient didn't pay or you just didn't pursue it. You're not required to report that to the insurance plans, right? That's, yeah. So, yeah. so many people, Brian, would say that that's overbilling. <clears throat> Well, I welcome anybody to challenge me on what I said, because cool. yeah. honestly, we, we're trying to get to the right answers. And I've actually been on the stage for state associations or conventions. And I've mentioned this and it's I mean, we're going on closer to eight years uh, of this this research. And and anytime I mention this, I do get doctors that send me articles saying you're actually right. And then they send me a medical article that says, yeah, this is. This has been vetted by the medical associations, right? And dental, we're kind of catching up to mm -hmm. all the research on this particular issue. But to date, this is the feedback that I've been receiving from our attorneys and attorneys across the country. If anybody has a different opinion on that, let me know. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that, that we, we, we share the advice that is 100% consistent with the laws. And so far, it seems to be that this is what's, best, what, what's current in terms of our understanding on how to deal with this out of network temporary out of network window <laughs> <laughs> so smart well the end result is the patient is taken care of the buyer is collecting some funds they're going to get uh, credentialed and all of that okay let me i'm going to take a, a minute here ben and um back up to again my prototypical buyer mm -hmm. they've signed an loi they haven't yet closed on a practice let's talk about the steps what are the logistical steps for uh, uh, someone in those in that situation to take to start the credentialing process, you know, g give me a sense of, um, you know, do I need to hire someone logistically? What am I, I I'm applying for it. Well, I already have an NPI number. What's this NPI two that you're talking about? Just g give me some of the very first few steps and then I'll apologize in advance. I may interrupt you and, and just clarify a few things. No but problem. Where do I even start? Absolutely. I always recommend just as it comes to um, purchasing a practice and hiring a professional to help you through that whole process to guide you. Insurance is so complex that it's always best to work with a professional, yep. whether could, it's. Could you do it yourself, though, just in yeah, theory? Absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot yeah. of doctors that are <clears throat> excuse me, very well versed with insurance mm -hmm. and many are very, very much capable. I mean, all are capable of playing the insurance game. But the question becomes, is that what you want to be a real expert on? Sure. Right. Right because it does take a lot of time, study and understanding um, that sometimes when you feel like you're you're doing your best with credentialing or the negotiations, <clears throat> there are hidden steps that you don't know about, right? That you could miss that could cost you thousands, if not millions of dollars over the years. So first step, I, I always look at the insurance systems and processes the same way that doctors do, right? Number step one, we need to diagnose the issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Which means you have to build the insurance profile for the seller. 
What insurance plans are they in network with? What are all the insurance plans that they're in network with? And what, what are the fee schedules that are tied to those insurance plans? So get right? get the list of insurance companies I'm in network with and get a fee schedule for those companies. Okay, got it. Correct. Yep. Now, the next part is a little bit challenging. It's it's the, the data analytics. Mm. If you can get this, which is basically how much revenue per, uh, was generated last year for each insurance plan, right? Insurance payments plus co-payments, total revenue, right? Yep. And the reason why that's important is because when it comes to the negotiating game or just the insurance participation game, you may discover that is, that there are plans that you probably don't want to carry over, right? They have a terribly low fee schedule mm -hmm. and you only have two patients on them, right? Mm -hmm. um, or does that particular PPO plan that only has two patients, can it use any umbrella networks that the seller's on or any new umbrella network that the seller's not on that has a higher fee schedule, right? That that particular assessment is difficult to do if you're not working with a professional right? <laughs> because right. there's so many different umbrella networks that are out there. <clears throat> but that's what we try to do is to look to, to look at the fee schedules in a way where can we elevate this contract to a better network fee schedule mm -hmm. to retain in-network status or is out-of-network going to be the best bet, right? Is, is that just a report <laughs> I can pull out of Dentrix, Eagle Soft, Open Dental? Can I, can I say, you know, how much met, uh, dollar, dollars per... Insurance company, MetLife, Blue Cross, you know, whatever is that? Is that an available report? No, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> not, not on the front end of dental, the uh, uh, Delt, excuse me, any of the uh, Dentrix or Open Dental. You actually have to pull that on the back end of the server mm. or 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 the software, which I don't recommend, especially with Dentrix. Yeah, because if you call Dentrix and say I want to pull these reports, they'll tell you, okay, we have to pull it from the back end. But if they make a mistake, your whole system is reset. You lose all that data. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, same thing with Open Dental and the others. You have to pull it from the back end. So you have to use a third party analytics company. If you're mm -hmm. using one, great. Or if you're planning on using one, great. This is something that you want to ask them. Got but it. most of them that are out there, like uh, Dental Intel, Seekasoft, Practice mm -hmm. by Numbers, and Denimetrics, which is one that we're exploring now, mm -hmm. they all have the capability to help you um, determine how much revenue last year was generated for each insurance plan. Um, and that that helps you plan it, it, to, to me, at least in looking at that as a professional, it helps you understand, OK, what's the strategy in terms of insurance credentialing? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And that. OK, so you, I think you maybe just uh, spoiled my plans because, you know, here I am. I'm a I'm a I'm a dental just, you know, I'm about to buy this practice. I'm a, yeah, I've got these 400 student loans still. I'm about to borrow another million for this practice. I just paid this Brian Hanks guy to analyze the practice. He wasn't cheap. You know, now you're telling me I got to hire this other professional. And, and so the solution that I came up with was the seller says the office manager is amazing. You know, mm -hmm. and the office manager can just take care of this for me. She, she is lights out. She has great relationships with the insurance companies. Um, and, and so, first of all, what do you think about that plan? But now I'm thinking, now I'm wondering if the, uh, the office manager has access to practice by numbers and dental intel and some of these things. What, what, what's the downside of using the office manager? Good question. <clears throat> um, I always look at it from the perspective of <clears throat> who's who's a, who's your representative, right? Right. Um, the office manager, and nothing against the office manager. That person may very well be your office manager in the future. Sure. But at that point of the transaction, the office manager loyalty is to the seller, right? Mm -hmm. And they may have good intentions, be good people, but from my experience, a lot of times the data that you collect, if it's somebody on the other side is not always perfect. It's not always spot on. Sometimes you get lucky and you see those reports come back in. But I would I would approach that from the perspective of this is just Ben 2A speaking. Mm -hmm. I would approach it a, a bit skeptically, right? Okay. It's kind of like when I go and buy a house. Yep. If the agent is representing the 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 seller, right? I'm not going to trust that agent whatsoever. If I'm not being represented at, by somebody at that point and the agent's trying to represent me dual representation, right? but they have an agreement with the seller, the fiduciary responsibility for that agent is to the seller, not right. to me, right? Exactly. Yep. So that's just that's just my log logical train of thought when it comes to trust. So what I recommend is you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to purchase an analytics report from Practice by Numbers, Dental Intel, and all these companies. You can request a free snapshot, right? Just okay. say, hey, I just wanna do some some data analytics. Do you do, do, you do a complimentary evaluation, right? To help me kind of understand like these that. numbers. And I want to do this in an effort to see if I want to use your software, you know, be genuine about it. These mm -hmm. analytics programs are very, very helpful as a practice owner 
but you can you can request that they get like a free snapshot from dental intel or yeah. or, or practice by numbers they call it they don't call it a snapshot it's something different and what i find for buyers is that a lot of times these third-party analytics programs are 100 happy to work with you yep. you know as part of your due diligence to hopefully encourage you to use their program in the future right cool yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I've got got my list of companies. I've got a fee schedule. I've hopefully I've got some analytics, and I've decided on whether or not I'm going to hire a professional. What's after that? So, yep. So after that, when you have all the data at that point, that's when the diagnostic process starts, right? If you're only looking at credentialing because you're crunched against time, or if the seller's only on PPO plans that don't negotiate, like Delta Dental or Blue Cross Blue Shield, at that point, if it's a limited list of insurance plans, of course your insurance your your diagnostics to that point would be very simple where my opinion is that mirroring the seller's existing P list of in-network statuses is important right in order to keep his, or retain as many patients as you can you don't want to have a whole lot of change as it pertains to in-network status um so so if it, it is a limited ppo structure start the credentialing process as soon as you and the seller kind of worked out a timeline on when you can get started on that per your confidentiality agreement if it's an extensive list of insurance plans, the key question is, is which of these plans are going to put you out at the six to eight month in terms of getting credentialed if you negotiate, right? Mm. And the follow-up question to that is, do you even have the time or the tolerance to do that where you're going to be out of network or could be out of network for a certain period of time, right? Um, so there's I so missed, many different things that, that you have to consider that. come from? I missed where that came from. What did you mean by that? So in terms of the, 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 the timeline for credentialing. Yeah. So if I, if I have to negotiate with an insurance plan, let's say I want to, I want to have MetLife under a negotiated umbrella uh -huh. network, right? Yep. So you have to get credential with the umbrella network first. And then once you're approved, and so that puts you out two to three months, then you have to wait for uh, MetLife to approve you under that umbrella network. And that puts you out to six to eight months I of being see. out of network, right? Two separate negotiations, each taking two to three months. Okay. I correct. Correct. Yeah. So that's the question that I have during this this phase is do I have time to negotiate if I if I want to negotiate the second question is where can I get some train who's going to help me with what I need to say to the patients mm -hmm. during the temporary out of network window right how do I yep. deal with that right and if you don't have the resources um, I don't recommend guessing or saying you know I'm going to we'll try to figure it out as you go right right B think big picture you know are we going to make mistakes that are going to cause patient to leave mm -hmm. right Exactly. The end goal to me as a practice owner is that we want to retain as many patients as possible, right? Um, if it's for most buyers, it's credentialing. It's just straight. Let's just get straight credentialed with insurance plans, uh, and then and then we'll figure out the negotiations one year after, right? And there's a myth and a rumor in the industry saying that once you sign credentialing agreements today, mm. I can't negotiate for two years. Yeah, yeah, I've that, heard that. Yep. That used to be the standard, uh -huh. not anymore. With the amount of doctors that are leaving PPOs, yeah. the doors are being opened to where Good. a buyer can buy a practice today, get credentialed today. A year later, you can start negotiating. This is brilliant, Ben. I've always got, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I'm just learning this right now because I've always said in order to hire an insurance negotiation or, or a credentialing expert, they're going to do two things for you, but I just heard a third. Okay, So mm -hmm. the two things I always told people was, number one, it pays to have someone help you with the process, right? Yes. Just having someone else tell me where to go to do NPI2 and which website and what to fill out. And I mean, it, it is, um, it's just like me hiring a plumber. I can hop on YouTube and try to fix my own faucet, or I can just pay a guy a hundred bucks and just have him do it for me. So, similar thing. And the second thing I tell people you're hiring help for is the expertise to negotiate. So mm -hmm. beyond just the paperwork, um, Knowing knowing about umbrella company and, and uh, umbrella agreements and when to do this and you know the optimal mix uh, that is a spe specialized set of knowledge that a credentialing expert is going to have that I don't. But then I heard you mention a third thing. Then the third thing is training me and my staff to have intelligent conversations with the patient. I'm, I'm again I'm embarrassed to admit I've never thought about that third one. I didn't know you guys do that. That's amazing. No, I appreciate that, Brian. I don't think we've had a conversation on that you know, in the past, but yeah. but I think that's a critical component in situations where you have no choice but to be out of network, right? right. Keeping the patients as happy as you can, using the right uh, protocols, the, the right scripting or verbiage. Um, what we found is that um, a lot of doctors can 
tolerate being out of network for an extended period of time if they know exactly what to tell the patients. Right? Yeah. You mentioned an, another thing that I forgot to touch on is the MPI too. So that so going re rewinding back a little bit, you know, what's my checklist as a new buyer, right? A buyer to the practice. And I just spoke to one of your clients, I think earlier this week, Brian, that he, he's moving into a state for the first time. So of course you need a license, dental license. Yep. You need um, malpractice insurance, at least an effective date on your close date. And if you're a general dentist, you need a DEA certificate or a DEA waiver signed by the seller to indicate that the seller will write prescriptions until you're, you have a DEA license in that particular state. Type 1 MPI, of course, that's required by the government for every dentist to have. Type 2 MPI is only required if you are, well, it's required if you're going to be using an LLC or professional corporation. Yeah, almost to, every single one of my clients is and doesn't, they'll need yeah. it. Yep. And so it's so, tied to my my EIN or my tax ID number for my business entity, not me as a, as an individual. Correct. Right. Correct. And this, I, I think this trips up a lot of buyers. I already got an yeah. MPI number. What are you talking about? <laughs> and I say, well, you yeah. started a new business. Mm -hmm. Your NPI one has to go under an NPI two and the NPI two is new, right? Correct. NPI okay. two is tied to the business. NPI one tied to the, the individual license for yeah. the doctor. Okay. But the way to apply for MPI two is you log into your, your individual MPI account, and then you you go to the or you go to the section that says I want to apply for an organizational MPI, mm. and that way you can you can manage your MPIs under one under one Perfect. login setting, Perfect. and that MPI then will, will sort of be tied to your main account, right? Mm -hmm. But type two MPI, yes, it's type two MPI or organizational MPI is tied to your tax ID. Got it. Okay. So Let me, now insurance companies ahead. don't require you to report that at the point of credentialing unless you're dealing with Medicaid. Mm. Um, so if you if you do get credentialed and you don't have your type two MPI, if you're dealing with commercial insurance plans like PPO plans, you can just report it on the claim form in the business entity section of, of the claim, right? Perfect. And then your type one MPI, individual MPI, that's reported under the rendering doctor section of the claim form. So, so I, I've gathered my list of insurance companies. I've got uh, fee schedules. I've decided on whether or not I'm going to hire an expert. Um, I'm filling out paperwork to make sure I have the correct NPI numbers. Can you give me a flavor of, I know you can't in, in a podcast format like this, step-by-step -step maybe doesn't make sense, but give me a flavor of what happens next in terms of the negotiations with the insurance companies. Uh, you alluded already to the fact that some will negotiate and some won't. Um, you know, is it... Uh, luck of the draw? Am I calling an 800 number? Is this over email? How, how does this go? And, uh, and how, how do you actually find success here and get a high crown fee that, that everybody wants? Good question. The key function with negotiations is talking to the right people at the insurance plans. Like many of you probably know that Delta Dental and a lot of insurance companies, they completely eliminated their traditional provider relations departments. Mm -hmm. And they've called, they now call them concierge departments. And sounds a lot better. Right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds a lot better, but not like a hotel concierge, right? You can go and you can get a lot of great information. It's like the, the current concierge department for insurance company is like going to a hotel and that concierge desk, there's never anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's by design. The insurance companies just want to make it difficult for you to get anything, any type of concierge service. But once you get to the concierge people, which are also same as the provider relations people, it's really what's called the network recruiters that those are the ones that will help you get credentialed, but they will also help you negotiate. Now, when you come, when you come in alone, um, sort of as a, a single doctor representing yourself, it's very similar to representing yourself in a court of law without legal counsel, right? The insurance plans will just, I mean, the insurance people just kind of, they'll put roadblocks up saying, oh, we're not negotiating. It doesn't matter what level of ask that comes from you, we just, we're just not going to change the fees, right? Or they will try to get you under a fee schedule less than what the seller has, right? Yeah, right. So that's the risk when, when you kind of go it alone is that with all the things that are going on with your practice transition, the insurance companies know that, mm -hmm. that you could be distracted from the fees or they could kind of take advantage of you with all the things that you're focusing on. Um, so with that said, you know, a professional is, is really helpful to kind of help make sure that you get, um, you at least enforce negotiations or push things along. But second to that, of course, is the umbrella networks. If you know which networks the MetLife can be moved to among the networks that the seller's on, those are things that you have to look for, right? As part of the negotiating process, you negotiate with all of them, 
but then start to, to, to move things around in terms of, okay, I'm going to move MetLife here. I'm going to move Aetna here. I'm going to move Cigna here. Yeah. Right. And that could be a little bit confusing for uh, a, a practice buyer with all the things that you're thinking about, all the tasks that you have going. Um, when you're confused about something like that, I, I would say almost any negotiating firm out there will at least help you build a plan of action saying, if I were you, I would do this. This is how I would get credentialed. And here's what the outcome would look like in terms of which PPO plans can follow certain PPO networks to get you the best fees. And if you get that from most of them, most of them like us, we'll give that to you for free, right? That'll give you a roadmap to tackle, right? In terms of, okay, this is what I want to do in terms of my credentialing and, and negotiations and how to get it done. Um, so, and then the final thing I'll say is that with negotiations, it's tough, um, you know, for buyers these days, because a lot of times plans like Cigna and Aetna or even United Concordia, they just won't negotiate with you at all. Um, so you don't, so you don't have a choice, but to look at umbrella networks or just to get credentialed at that point and then try to renegotiate a year down the road. Right. So a, a lot of different options there in terms of how to, how, how to view things. My opinion on priority is that it's okay just to get credentialed. If that's all you want to do, if you're not going to work, if you're not working with a professional negotiator, it's okay to get credentialed, right? Like what Brian said, you want to think about long-term. This year is going to be the first year that we're going to sacrifice to be on the, the same fees as the seller. Uh, we're going to get to know the patient base in an effort for us to gain their trust. Yep. And then we're going to try to negotiate a year from now, right? That's, and that's yeah. totally fine. Cool. Totally fine. Cool. Yeah, a couple follow-up questions. Uh, that's that's good to know, right? Because I don't have to wait two years like right. I used to think. Okay, yep. Um, do when when I hire Bennett Veritas to do my negotiations for me, and you call up the the concierge, the the non-existent concierge <laughs> desk where nobody <laughs> works anymore. Um, is it uh, you know because when I call a bank and talk to a banker, right? I get a different response than the dentist who calls the bank and bank. Is that the same thing? Or is the, is uh, Cindy on the end of Cigna's, you know, concierge desk? Oh, geez, it's Ben from Veritas. Oh, fine. Just give him 1100 for the crown. And, you know, I know he's going to beat me up if I don't, you know, is that how that goes? I mean, um, 100%. Okay. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You'll get a different response than we will. And then oftentimes there's a game to be played too, because there's, um, there are insurance companies that will not work with third-party mm. negotiating firms like ours or any, oh. anybody else that's so out there. you coaching the dentist through the conversation. Yeah, we'll coach yeah. them through and, and let them know exactly what needs to be said. We'll, we'll put trigger words in, in yeah. their scripts so that the insurance companies know, okay, yep. they may be reaching out to us directly, but this is coming from Veritas. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and maybe this is, I apologize it's a little blunt, but I have had clients ask me, well, I hear, and you just mentioned several that won't negotiate. Mm -hmm. So why even bother hiring an insurance negotiator if so many insurance companies, quote unquote, won't negotiate? Good question. Um, so a lot of insurance plans won't negotiate directly with third-party companies. And you may try, you may be successful, but the, the strategy behind the contract optimization part, right? Like let's take Cigna as an example. Cigna will not work with any third-party companies. So if you don't know what all the options are for Cigna, this is where a negotiator can become very helpful. Is that like in Missouri, as an example, the direct contracts with Cigna are typically 30% less than the, the Cigna contract through Premier or Connection wow. Dental or Zealous. So when you hire a negotiator, it's not just the direct negotiations you're hiring them for. A good negotiator would look at all contract options, right? So that if you're if you're turned down by Cigna directly, well, there's another option for you to pursue a Cigna increase through a Cigna affiliate, right? Using an umbrella network strategy. Yep. So in other words, um, the, the, the headline might be that this company doesn't negotiate, but that doesn't mean there isn't a way to get a higher fee. Absolutely. So, yep. you know, there's Blue Cross. Now, Blue Cross and... United Concordia are negotiable. There's a lot of firms out there that say, no, they're not negotiable. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, you guys are short-sighted. Yeah. In Texas, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, it, it's through the Dental Network of America contract, right? Well, Dental Network of America uses Denimax, Carrington Connection Dental, <laughs> Mavris. And you can get a Dental Network agreement through Mavris. That's 40% higher than Dental Network of America Direct, right? Oh, yeah. So, so those are those are things that a good negotiator would look out for in an effort to give you the best advice possible if direct negotiations aren't available. All right, Ben, I've got two last questions for you, and we'll wrap up. Um, the the 
first question I have for you is around uh, the assumption that we've been making that the buyer is uh, looking at a practice that is in network with PPOs. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about fee-for-service offices. What about this whole past conversation changes when the office the buyer is looking at is, is strictly fee-for-service? Is this Excellent. is this all moot? Can they have uh, just skipped these these last few podcasts and um, ignored all of this? And and how does this work if it's a fee for service office? Absolutely, I'd say if it's a fee for service office and you have no intentions of going in network with insurance plans, the only thing you need to focus on uh, as you know, pretty much an out of network provider all around is getting registered with each of the insurance companies as an out of network provider. Okay. Um, even though Delta Dental doesn't accept assignment of benefit out of network, they do require you to submit a tax ID form. And that way they at least have you on their in their system so that when a claim comes from you on behalf of a patient, they know who you are, right? They have some level of out of network credentialing performed um, that allows them then to reimburse the patient for, for treatment. Most other insurance plans, it's just a, either filling out same thing, a tax ID form or submitting a copy of your W-9, mm -hmm. because if an insurance company pays you, and if you accept assignment of benefit, they cannot pay you without having your tax ID vetted as per IRS regulation. The IRS does not allow insurance, uh, insurance plans to send reimbursement to anybody unless somebody can be responsible for taxes on that money, okay. right? Yeah, that makes sense. So out of network, fee for service, all you have to do is just get registered as an out-of-network provider with every insurance plan that you, you plan to send claims to. If, if you were a buyer of a fee-for-service office, would you spend money on hiring an insurance negotiator and credentialing expert? Good question. I would only do an assessment to answer the question, can we continue fee-for-service, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yep. Meaning, are we bleeding money, right? Are we bleeding? Is, is there a history of uh, patients, patient attrition that may be something to pay attention to from the perspective of, do we need to join networks to stop the bleeding and regrow the practice? Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, you can get an opinion from most firms. Um, I mean, I'll give a completely honest opinion and I'll spend, I'll spend a few hours for any, any anybody yeah. that comes to us and, and, and really research that practice in the area. Most of the times I, I come back to the fee for service doctor buyers and I say, stay away from insurance. Yeah. Right. Follow these protocols, have great customer service, but just follow these protocols, which is the out of network registry. And I'll just give them the instructions for them to go about getting that done. Very few practice owner or buyers. There is a solid case that uh, a fee for service practice is failing where the, there's significant decline mm -hmm. um, that the potential of joining insurance may be something to look at. Although I'm not a favor of taking a fee for service practice into the PPO world unless we can use the PPO world as a temporary um, solution to stop patient attrition mm -hmm. and to grow the practice, but with the goal of getting out of those insurance plans within a year to two years down the road. Eventually, we, yeah, showing that we're such an amazing office and I'm such a great clinician and we always start our appointments on time and we have 5,000 mm -hmm. positive Google reviews that they'll come back even if yes. they're not network. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, uh, last question is around, um, uh, the top two most uh, feared words in any um, dental transition where there is uh, an insurance company involved. And the, those two words are Delta Premier. All right. <laughs> and, and this is especially uh, problematic in certain states, California being kind of um, foremost among them. But I think every client I've ever worked with in any state, all 50 of them, there has been a question around, well, hold on. The seller has a fee schedule with Delta Premier. I've heard that I can't get the same reimbursement rates. That that has implications about the business valuation that we don't need to get into today, but um, and what price that buyer should pay for that practice. But let's set that aside for a minute. Let's say the buyer is going to move forward. They're going to pay whatever XYZ price for that practice. What are the options for the buyer today as we're recording? By the way, we're recording this uh, first quarter 2023, uh, and, and these things can change as, as they often do. But today, Delta Premier, what advice do you have for people on how to handle that appropriately? Absolutely. Um, with states that have an enrollment policy, meaning you have to have been enrolled with Delta by 2013 or 14 to be Premier eligible, mm -hmm. we are seeing Delta Dental um, give Premier eligible doctors a hard time, like in Wisconsin and Michigan, where they have this rule, right? Yep. 
Um, my recommendation is to push and persist. Um, if you're premier eligible, and that's the number one thing that you have to ask Delta is I contracted with Delta at such and such date, but I'm just buying a new practice. I'm still in network at another practice, right? And I'm premier at that practice. Delta Dental will work hard to try to lower you to the PPO standard, right? right. Um, the number one thing that I've used is discrimination, right? Where when you look at that community or that area, and, and of course, if you have knowledge that there are recent providers this same year that have joined another practice at the Delta Premier level, that's totally discri discrimination because yeah. you haven't seen anything from Delta Dental about their bylaws changing, indicating that you can no longer do that. You can no longer retain Premier if you move to another practice, right? But Delta will fight you on that. They'll say, no, no, we can't do that anymore. So you just have to fight back um, in discrimination you know, arguing discrimination is, is, has been probably the number one argument that we've used. Now, on the flip side, for doctors that don't qualify for Premier um, or are not Premier eligible. Yep. Never um, been. I've never been on Premier. Yep. Right. So you there, you have no choice in most states but to join at the PPO level. Mm, okay. Don't lose hope on that because the, the best thing that's going on in the industry today as it pertains to the, the checks and balances with insurance is that a significant of premier only providers with Delta are dropping Delta. Interesting. Yeah. And that's now causing places like Texas to be more flexible on their premier policies, right? Where they're now inviting doctors that are not premier, premier eligible to join premier only, right? In the end, Delta just needs providers. They need to maintain a provider list. So if you're, if you're, you're forced to do PPO, just be patient because there is a likelihood that that could change over the course of the next two years or, or so, right? Cool, yep. Um, but yeah, so th there are some hard truths here that people need to read. Okay, I, um, I lied, I did think of one additional question. <laughs> what, is, what is the typical range of hiring an insurance credentialing expert? And I'm sure it's gonna vary based on how many companies I need help with uh, mm -hmm. to get credentialed, but is, is there a budget that a buyer can kind of plan for to hire someone like you? Yes, um, most firms will charge any, anywhere between 1500 to 3000 or more for credentialing. Um, I, I'm, I recommend caution as you kind of shop around for somebody. If you're just looking for credentialing, you'll this find with the paperwork, right? Just yeah, tell me where to go for NPIs and, and that kind of thing. Okay. It's totally basic level entry stuff, right? Like I don't do credentialing. I have, I have entry level team members that handle all that stuff and they're paid entry level wages, right? And as such, you don't need to pay hygiene wages for something like that. Got it. So, so keep that in mind. And this is my belief with any service, you know, like in, insurance verification, some doctors are paying hygiene wages for that task and not, not to like downplay <laughs> people that do, do this role. It is somewhat of an entry level position where the pricing should kind of mirror that. In my opinion, if you need to get credential with every single dental plan that's out there, I don't think you should be paying any more than $1,500 or, or a company more than $1,500 to do that because okay. it's just mostly paperwork that's being filled out, submission and paperwork, you know, a job that, that a lot of practices have high school students do. Nice. Um, and so, but, but if you do have no choice, I mean, most companies would charge you well above $2,500 for a, a list of insurance plans that are out there, like every insurance plan to get credential with. Now, when it comes to negotiations, that's a different story okay. because negotiations is a lot more intense sure. and it ranges depending on what PPO plans that you're in network with, but you could be paying anywhere between 4,000 to 8,000 for a fee yeah. negotiating service. Yeah. And if, if I'm able to get an extra hundred bucks on a crown that pays for itself pretty quickly. And yes. I assume as part of that service, you're training me and my staff on how to have intelligent conversations with patients that keep them in the practice and I don't uh, lose them to patient attrition. Absolutely. Okay, good. Absolutely. Ben, um, people can find you at Veritas Dental Resources, um, and uh, we'll put you your um, email address and uh, website in the show notes, of course. Um, if you've been under a rock and you haven't read anything, <laughs> magazines, websites, podcasts, uh, you can basically find Ben Tune anywhere. <laughs> He's a <laughs> sought-after speaker, um, and we're really fortunate to have you here on the Practice Purchase Podcast. Ben, anything else I missed before we go? No, I'd, I'd say you can find me anywhere ex except for the strip clubs. I don't do that, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> otherwise in dentistry, you know, I'm an open book. Uh, if anybody has questions or, or needs some guidance, you know, reach out to me and I'll, I'll give you the straight truth about, 
you know, whatever situation you're facing right now, you'll, you'll at least know from me, you'll get an honest, honest set of feedback from us. We've referred a lot of folks. Ben is very generous with uh, free time with a lot of uh, our clients and to uh, give them an honest assessment of whether or not his help makes sense. So I do encourage people that if they're listening to this to give him a shout and uh, at least understand what your options are and then go from there. Ben, thank you again. Thank you so much, Brian. Great chatting with you.